realized that well, there was something really powerful about that connection. It wasn't just with their passion, but it was also the community that we were creating around. Them. People made these connections, and we ended up creating a really interesting uh, community around. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University mm -hmm. Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Tom Richardson, and I'm joined this week with my co-host, Joe Favorito. We have not been together for a show in a couple of weeks, so Joe, reunited, and it feels so good. What's up? Peaches and Herb. That's us. Nice. Nice reference. I love it. Tom, Tom we haven't, we still have not done a physical show together in two and a half years, which is- You know, Joe, I actually thought of that two nights ago. I was leaving campus, had my class on Wednesday, and I walked out on 120th, and I looked across longingly to Teachers College Building when you yeah. and I used to get lost with 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 Tom and, and James and Maurice and the old producers trying to do the shows yeah. in that building. I still don't understand that building. One of the most yeah. mysterious ones on the campus. Yeah. Uh, well, one of these days, I mean, I'm there on Wednesday, so maybe we'll work it out. Yeah. Um, so what's going on? I mean, man, there's a lot happening in our biz right now. And I know you've been busy. You've been doing a lot of traveling. You got a lot of events and things like that. Anything you want to chat about for a minute? I mean, between, well, by the time everybody listens to this, we'll be somewhere with LJ and Danny on Radio Row. Uh, oh, that's right. Bowl. Next week. Next yeah. week. Okay. Um, just got back from Toronto for PHF Women's Hockey All-Star Game at, and an amazing ceremony at the Hall of Fame, which was great. Um, you know, just keeping things moving. Uh, uh, the movie I worked on, 80 for Brady, opens this week, and it was really nice that Tom Brady decided to, to retire the day before we were doing a radio tour with Sally Field, who stood up and said, it wasn't my fault. I didn't tell him to do it. So, <laughs> Oh, that's um, great. That's, yeah, that's it's really all good. Funny. You know, it's yeah. a busy time, and you know, man, lots of stuff. I mean, for, depending on when people listen to this, I guess there's probably a dozen teams for sale right now or. Um, well, yeah. And I, I mean, like I've been, you know, as I start a new semester, just updating my, my syllabus and, and the class each week. And, and as I like to say, digital media is the educational gift that keeps on giving because there's just new stuff happening every day. I'm, I'm really fascinated by the story of the semester for digital media, which is the new MLS deal with Apple, which officially kicked off. The MLS season pass on Apple TV Plus just went on sale a few days ago. It's going to be a really interesting ride uh, this season. And and by the way, you probably know this: their season kicks off in three weeks, which is kind of hard to believe. And, also, and, and NWSL right behind that with their you know right their, to be official announcement of their expansion. Exactly. And then um, I don't know if you saw the announcement last week that. Meta and the NBA announced that they were going to be doing over 50 games in VR uh, yeah. this season, which is quite interesting. And Roblox is doing a concert in Web 3.0, which I don't really understand. I guess there's no hard tickets for that. Maybe our guests can help explain that, yeah. a, a 3.0 experience. I mean, um, yeah, and then the other one, Joe, they, they just did another AR game with Niantic uh, called NBA All World, which is, as mm. one but somebody described it, Pokemon for basketball fans, but yeah. I was actually checking that out yesterday. And so for me, it's fun because we get to incorporate the stuff into the class and chat I'm about just, it, but got to hand forward it to the to NBA. Play, they keep I'm just forward to playing chess this weekend, Tom. I want to play chess. This Are weekend. you really? You're going you're gonna to play online with Not Robert, virtual chess. Rob, like real, Are you going to you know, play with Robert Hess? Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to play a virtual game against... Um, yeah, against Robert Hess, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, anyway, that, that game probably wouldn't last too long. Yeah, that's um, why I only want to play yeah. for about 10 minutes. So okay, we'll cool. Um, all right, so Joe, I just referred to, some, we, we both referred to Web 
three, we're living kind of in the web 2.5 world, but this web three is coming at us fast. And we have someone today is going to help us suss it out a little bit. Someone who's doing some really interesting things with new tech and in, in the blockchain world. Um, and in his bio, he's a, I, I guess it's, you'd say it's self-described scientific philosopher. We've never had one on the show before. So we're very excited about this, but we're, we're talking about uh, a gentleman named David Palmer, who's the CEO and founder of Bernoulli Lock, which is a company focused on creating and investing in member-based businesses. David's got a really interesting background in finance and hospitality. He's really at the forefront of what's happening with blockchain-based experiences and DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which we'll talk about. And what's really interesting about Bernoulli Lock, a few months ago, they announced a fascinating deal in the sports world as it relates to sailing and sail GP, which I think is backed by Larry Ellison of Oracle, but it's and a Jerry DAO. Schiller, who's been on our show. That's right. Yeah. And, it, but it's a DAO um, ownership of a new sail GPT team. So we've got a lot to talk about, David. David, welcome to the show. Real pleasure to have you. Thank you both. I really appreciate being here today. All right. So why don't we start with a little bit of the backstory? Like how the heck did you get into all this stuff after a career in finance and hospitality? I know that's kind of open-ended, but I, but I think I, I suspect well, you've got a good, a good story. It was actually really a, a, a direct link. So, you know, in hospitality, we, we real, realized early on that connecting people and passions and community was really the core of what we were doing in, in our hospitality platform. We were, we were a, um, a membership-based business really had two businesses, we had an asset management business and we had a membership management business. And we had about 800,000 people that were in the membership program and in our flagship across six different memberships. And in our flagship program, uh, we had about 180,000 people. And we, we started creating more and more value around community and membership and experiences and took that business from about negative 30 million EBITDA when we acquired that portion of the business to about 175 million positive EBITDA. The overall business went from 100 million of EBITDA to 460 of EBITDA in just four years when I was uh, when, we were, when we were public. And it was all driven by experiences and all driven by connecting passion and community and re-evaluating what, what the value was to be part of that community. And what we found, it was really interesting how we started getting involved in and the typical verticals that people love, you know, passions is sports and food and entertainment and music. We started creating really interesting um, proprietary experiences around those passions. And, and we got involved with sports. Uh, and we did a really, really interesting thing in how we actually ended up partnering with, a, first with Major League Baseball, then with the NFL. With Major League Baseball, we had 11 resorts in Arizona and we had... 17 resorts in Florida. If you know, spring training for MLB is both in Arizona and Florida. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that we can create a really interesting program around spring training. Uh, we weren't sure how powerful it was going to be, but I've, I've always been fascinated in sausage making, right? It's like the behind the scenes and what, what really makes things work. So we partnered with the New York Yankees and the San Francisco Giants. We, we hired Gaylord Perry with the Giants and Reggie Jackson with the, with the Yankees. And we created, for about 30 to 40 people at a time, these three-day immersive 
spring training experiences. It, it, it varied from practice where they would meet the pitching coach or the swing coach, nutritionist, and, you know, Reggie would bring people through, okay, this is what we're trying to evaluate with swing mechanics. And, you know, Gaylord would do have his thing. Um, or they might actually be a spring training game. It may be a scrimmage or maybe a, a, a game between two teams. And we really deconstructed the entire baseball experience from just a fan kind of viewing a game to a fan being immersed and interacting with coaches and players and, and understanding what was happening. And we ended up, you know, doing a couple tests and we found, and we would sell these, you know, 30 or 40 people at a time, nearly every weekend uh, during spring training. And then we expanded it to a couple times a week and we could barely fill, and we were, we were just always at capacity because people love this, this pursuit of a passion, learning about something, interacting with fandom in a completely different way. Uh, we expanded that program to the NFL with the Washington football team, um, there we didn't actually do spring training, we actually did in-season games. So we had a really cool experience where we brought people down to the sidelines with the offensive coordinator during a game. Um, so they were able to hear plays being called and it was just an extraordinary event. Those were, a lot of those were actually kind of surprise reveals. So people knew that they were coming to one of these sporting events. They didn't quite understand the level of interaction that they were going to be having with the coaching staff or with the player. Um, and then you know, we, we realized that, well, there was something really powerful about that connection. It wasn't just with a passion, but it was also the community that we were creating around those. You know, people made these connections and it wasn't just about the pursuit of baseball. And they realized, oh, wow, you're really into, into golf or scuba. And we, and we ended up creating a really interesting uh, community around the pursuit of a particular passion. And we started then getting involved and helping those people pursue that community connection in new unique ways. We had a group of people who would play golf every year in Portugal, another group who would play golf in Ireland. So it was a really interesting journey for me from base level hospitality to experiential hospitality to passion-based hospitality and linking people with experiences and community. And we sold that business in in uh, 2016 to Apollo Management and a go private transaction. And I retired at the time. Uh, so we sold that business and, you know, it was a great run. You know, we created a lot of value for our shareholders and, and uh, it was just an extraordinary experience. And uh, so I was in my, you know, kind of retired and I was still connected with people in the hospitality industry. And I started thinking about new forms of fan engagement, new forms of passion engagement, community engagement. And I started looking at what was happening in the Web3 world and realizing that there was a lot of interest in people having much more control, much more involvement um, in whatever area of interest that there were the people in the art world or people in the finance world or people in, in the, the collectibles world that were starting to get involved in, in, in Web3. And what I realized is that it was a really interesting form of next generation membership because uh, it allows a certain degree of trustless interaction and transparency, um, you know, in more traditional forms, and kind of Web2 forms, you have kind of a centralized organization that needs to build the trust with each individual. And, you know, you're kind of, you're the master curator. The Web3 world allowed there to be a little bit more uh, organic control for the community 
depending on how much the, the organization basically decentralized decision-making. Um, and we knew you know, from, our, from our, our guest experience at Diamond that people really wanted to be engaged in, in their membership. And I just gave you a really interesting fact that I carried, it just wouldn't leave my head. So in our membership, a typical exit survey, when a person stays in a hotel, you get about a five to 10%. Um, you know, you get those little cards, you know, online is 10 questions. You get about five to 10% types of response rates. We were getting 35 to 40% response rates on a 53 question uh, exit survey. Because people were so engaged that they were members, they, bought, they had purchased a lifetime subscription from us. They were very, very engaged in these experiences and what they wanted out of those experiences, willing to give us a lot of feedback and information. So I, I always knew that if you had a, a unique way to give people more input into their journey with you, they'll give you the time, they'll give you the feedback, they'll give you the input. And I knew, realized that Web3, if designed well, gives people the ownership of their experience much more, gives them input, gives them the ability to have an engagement. So I sort of come up with the concept that this could be a really interesting next level, next generation of membership, of community management. And DAOs, if done correctly, can actually provide that with the voting mechanisms in a properly centralized organization. The issue then became, well, how do you combine that, which is to a certain degree anarchy, with a high performance organization. And that became really the, you know, the puzzle to solve. How do you bring those two worlds together? You know, how do you put a high performance sports organization or any type of high performance organization together with a, a decentralized autonomous organization that wants to have input in everything? So we created a kind of a hybrid structure. Um, so our DAO will have a, a number of rights that no shareholders probably ever had before, communities ever had before. They, have, they, they will have rights over the annual budget, for example, and certain uh, key decisions when it comes to capital structure, equity distributions. Um, but for day-to-day, -day, uh, we created a management company and that management company will actually execute the day-to-day -day operations against that budget. So the budget becomes kind of the governing uh, document and then the management company will then execute on an annual basis against that uh, that budget to make sure that they put you know forth a, a high performance team or any type of high performance organization. So we've decided to apply this first structure that allows total transparency. Everything is on the blockchain that the, that the community votes on. Um, we approached Sale GP because uh, I knew that sports and sport community was going to be a key area where Web three structures could have real relevance. And I talk about both from a community standpoint and also an ownership standpoint. You mentioned at the beginning about how many teams are for sale right now. And I talk about why I think the tokenization of equities would be a very important part of team ownership stability and liquidity um, in the next decade. Uh, I started looking at the various sports leagues. Very few people were willing to uh, allow for DAO, you know, decentralized ownership type structures. They were still trying to understand it. And I was friendly with Jimmy Spittle, who's one of the, the best sailors in the world. He's the, the CEO and driver for Team USA and CLGP. I started talking to him about, hey, maybe we can just create some type of thing around uh, your team. 
And he introduced me to the folks at SailGP. Right at the same time that SailGP made an announcement that they were bringing near uh, protocol, which is a level one blockchain partner on as a, as a uh, presenting sponsor. And we're very open to the idea of bringing a DAO owned or DAO managed team into the league. So it was, it was one of these just serendipitous paths that kind of uh, led to each other. And we started speaking March of this last year and then really accelerated the conversations in June. And you're correct that Larry Ellison is the founder of SailGP. He is the entire, he's put up almost the entire equity. 10% uh, of it is owned by Endeavor as well. But it's really, oh, I didn't know that. really it's really, uh, you know, Larry's vision for a new type of league. And, and the reason why I was really just partner with them is like, unlike other sports leagues, he designed it day one to be equal access to technology uh, from every team standpoint. So they all race in the same boat. Um, they're all equal and they're super sophisticated. I've talked about the sophistication built into the boats and they all have access to each other's data sets. And so being a data-driven company, so just to give you a sense of, of the data and part of, of creating an interesting engaged fan opportunities access to information, access to what's happening, right? And if in a closed data system, like for example, Formula One is a closed data system. Each team is proprietary uh, data right. system. They're not gonna share that with anybody else. And so the thought of distributing that to a membership or a community is a scary topic, right? Yeah. They're never gonna allow, you know, 2000 owners to have access to information because they're worried that's gonna get that leaking out to another team. Well, Larry had designed SailGP from day one as an open data system. Each boat has actually a massive data collection uh, tool. Each boat has 10 miles of fiber optic cable and 30,000 sensors. There's 10 million lines of data per second generated during a fleet race and 48 billion lines of information that is generated per race. And all that information is actually then it's gone, it's, you use the Oracle Cloud to distribute it. Each team has access both in real time and post-race to every other team's data. So you can understand what were they doing? What was the position of their, of their foil during this pack? How were they trimming their sale? All that information is available to everybody else. And, and the reason why he wanted to do that was that it gives all the teams the ability to be competitive from the start, right? So they all are able to be competitive from a tech standpoint. They see the information and it gets down to the, the, the actual team and the actual drivers. It isn't just about a, a technology advantage that you have. They all have the same tech advantage. It really gets down to, well, who are the sailors in the boat? Okay, so let's let's um, let's hear how it actually went. So you, the, the idea came to fruition, you got this approved, and then you had to go out and essentially recruit potential owners, right, for the DAO. So we're in the middle of doing so, it right now. So what, how did, how did that uh, actually so getting, transpire? Yeah. Yeah. So first getting it approved was a big task. I mean, we had to work together with SailGP and understand how did they change their participation agreement? You know, leagues in general, as we're thinking about expanding to Web3, expanding to fractionalized ownership, expanding to DAO type um, community, they have to think about their participation agreements very, very differently, right? Because 
they need they've, they've all been structured to be around usually a single owner or owner group that's that's represented by it and how do you kind of rethink that so we worked with them over a number of months a lot of lawyers that got involved about how to change the participation agreement we we were able to get to a point where it made sense um for them and for us uh then we we said okay we now have a structure we work on a legal structure it's a hybrid structure because a DAO in and of itself is a general partnership. There's nobody that's going to invest in the equity of a general partnership because of the, of the liabilities, right? You need limited liability. Well, in Wyoming, they actually allow LLCs and DAOs to be the same entity, right? So we formed a, a limited liability company in Wyoming where I live. Um, so we can have actually a hybrid, it's a DAO and an LLC. So it allows an equity investor to have limited liability, which is by far, the, you know, the most important tenet of, of equity investment is limited liability. So that gave us the ability to have kind of a traditional structure, traditional LLC structure married with a DAO uh, from a governance standpoint. And we're basically then fractionalizing the LLC uh, into equity tokens. And we just launched just really about two weeks ago, the effort of now going out to uh, 1,950 accredited investors. If you know much about private placements uh, in, under US securities law, uh, you can do a, 50, a regulation D 506C uh, private placement to uh, up to 2,000 uh, accredited investors. Uh, and we're in the process of, we have a two month funding window right now where we're going out to the entire world actually, because anybody can, can invest in the token if you are an accredited investor. And we have a, a full third-party know your customer accreditation um, evaluation process that people have to go through. So, uh, so, it's we not, just, so to, to be clear, this is not for average selling fans. This is for like a one per a half of one percent crowd accredited investors who who right, have, so who have basically the legal right to to do something like this. Right. But general. So, so that's an interesting question, and let's let's kind of go beyond this particular story, if you don't mind, because yeah. we want to see. I, I think both Joe and I want to know how this might be brought out to, to be more uh, populist in nature. At yeah. least I do, because if this ultimately is concentrating on just a very elite group of investors, it's not quite as appealing, I think, to average fans for whatever sport we're talking right. about. So, how do you go beyond that? I mean, as so you prove, have prove this use case. I guess. Yeah, there's two, there's two mechanisms. Uh, the first mechanism, so we actually worked also from a legal structure. So accredited investors, as you know, household income as an individual, 200,000 or more a year, uh, uh, or as married, 300,000 a year, net worth outside of your principal residence of a million dollars. So it definitely is an elite person. Mm -hmm. uh, we can have up to 2,000 of those uh, under a Reg D offering. Now, if, if, if the size of the organization was larger and could accept the burden of public financial disclosure, meaning that you know, it's two to $5 million a year to, to issue uh, public statements, right? We could expand that to have uh, basically an unlimited number of shareholders, but you didn't have the burden of filing basically your public statements with the SEC. So it really is a question of, size of the organization from a revenue and profit standpoint that really regulates that. 
So I do envision if you're going to ultimately get into NBA franchises, MLB franchises, NFL franchises, that they would actually have enough revenue and profit to justify the additional two to $5 million a year of expenditure to go beyond the 2,000 accredited investors. So as we export this structure to other uh, leagues, I think that you'll see people willing to go through that additional regulatory compliance and cost. What we're doing at SalesGP to kind of hybrid that is we're coming up with a community token that is not equity, but still gives people uh, certain governance rights in our DAO. That is just a few hundred dollars and that's open to non-accredited investors. And that's very, very clear. It's, so we were able to work, you know, and that's gonna come out of a, a whole different entity. So there's no confusion about who actually owns an equity token. The equity tokens are, our investment range is $5,000 to $200,000. We're capping people at $200,000. So we want, you know, broad distribution. We want this to just concentrate a bunch, just, you know, a few people. So I think we're going to see, and clearly the reason why I'm doing this, I'd like to see this exported to a number of different leagues. I think we've, we've figured out the structure that works. So I can see ultimately, let's say, uh, an NBA team, you know, they're all going to trade between five and ten billion now. It looks like that's kind of the new, the new benchmark. Uh, I think one of the issues that the leagues have is that at that level, from an ownership standpoint, there's only so many people that can stroke a five to ten billion dollar check. There's only so many groups that can stroke that. So I think they're going to be interested in, in, a, in having these quasi, call them quasi public, and it's because a dial effect because it's on the blockchain. It's all. It's basically public, right? You know exactly what's happening because anybody can go and look at your blockchain voting. You can understand actually what's happening. You know, so it's a public ledger. Uh, but it creates an interesting uh, permanence. So if you have somebody coming in to buy, you have an investor. And I know a number of the, of the owners in all the sports leagues. And they go in and they have maybe an ownership group of five or ten folks. They all put in, you know, a billion dollars. Well, they're going to want to have some sort of monetization of that at some point. So the league is looking at potential ownership changes every 10 years, five years, or something like that. I think that our structure will allow, because once you equitize and, and you basically fractionalize the token structure and you have broad distribution, people can then trade those tokens peer-to-peer with each other. Um, or eventually they can become exchange traded if they actually get, you know, if you actually go through the process of actually registering those and those securities and we by the way are saying these are securities and we've we've stood up and unlike some other web3 folks say oh these are not securities we're saying they're 100 securities so it could create some very interesting liquidity profiles that allow the organization to be in effect permanent with a liquidity profile with the ownership that allows them to trade either amongst themselves or with other people on a peer-to-peer basis all right Joe, do you see how this might actually be applied to other sports that we know about? Because it seems like with the big leagues, this would be, at no. least in the near future, impossible. No, I mean, not, team, not, not team sports. This this is not something that's going to – it doesn't make any – I mean, honestly, it's a great idea for a sport like SailGP or I know Chris Lincheski, our colleague, has tried to launch – Racing Dow has not worked yeah. yet. We're trying to figure it out, but if or like fan control, fan control, fan control football was selling at least fan control NFTs. a very small scale. Yeah. If, if right. I'm Daniel Snyder and I'm about to sell the Washington Commanders, 
I, I don't, I want the whole pie. I don't want to bring in. And, and I, I just think, I mean, I don't think, honestly, I mean, maybe this is something way, way in the future for extra equity. And, and what I think, you know, David mentioned at the end is important. Yeah. It'll be amongst an insider group of elite individuals who can take those pieces and trade them back and forth. That makes sense to me, but the Green Bay Packers is not happening again. The, the legislation has changed the way that, that sports are run in this country. And frankly, in, most teams, if I'm an owner and I'm spending that money, I, I don't think I want that, to tell you the truth. You know, now, yeah, maybe, think, maybe, yeah. it's another, maybe it's another revenue source down the road, but but I, I, I think teams have enough problems right now with trying to make sure that their social feeds are not trying to influence their, their on-the-field on the activities. And I, 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 I think it's an interesting idea that, and I think, by the way, I do think the DAOs have a place in sports. They've done very, very well, obviously, uh, in the in the gaming space. So, um, but I just I don't see this being adaptable anywhere in, in you know in our lifetimes for for traditional sports in this country, not not for a closed audience like they have. So, but yeah, I mean, I love the idea. I was really interested when Chris talked to me about about motor DAO and how that could work because of the structure of racing. And he didn't even talk about Formula One. He was actually talking about IndyCar, yeah. um, which could be a real parallel to sale GP. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think for high net worth individuals looking for a way in, there's always going to find a way to have someone take their money and, and be part of something. That's the beauty of being in that club. So, so David, um, if you think of, right, if you think of Bernoulli Lock going beyond, at least in the sports category, and you're welcome to use examples from other parts of the experience economy and entertainment. But um, as you think about the future of your business, new business beyond sale GP, like what's on the roadmap yeah. for you I guys mean, as you think about all, the, all yeah, those well, challenges? Even honestly, and let's let's talk in terms of five years, because I think yeah. that's really interesting. Like when you look at this and take it outside of sports, even like entertainment industry, you know, yeah. other places where people are are congregating, how how would you love to take this and take the, the, the best practice that hopefully comes out with CLGP and apply it to other places. We'd love to yeah. have that. Well, right now, and for sure, I mean, I, I have a motorsports background. Um, it's for sure there's a, there's a motorsports analog here for sure. Um, across, I mean, the, the issue ultimately is creating the digital, the, the good digital experience because they, they are closed data systems, but motorsports, you know, I have deep, deep relationships across the entire motorsports universe, and I'm already in conversations about that. Um, beyond, you know, and, and within sports, you're going you're gonna to see some other areas of sport develop as well. I think you'll, you'll start to see some uh, some soccer organizations that start to trend in, in, in this way and have conversations with them as well. But there's also, there's also cycling. There's a number of areas in, in sport that uh, where it ultimately has some really interesting uh, structural uh, appeal. And I agree with Joe that. Yeah, but you know, what about tennis? Before you leave the other sports, tennis and golf. I mean, we've seen the lunacy of L uh, live golf. Is there something that yeah. this could apply to? I mean, Billie Jean for you know 50 years had world team tennis. I mean, is there is there a scale? Because you talk about indi really individual sports. Is is there a scale right. for this there? You know, I've looked at tennis and we've looked at it from a couple of different ways. One is actually, I mean, if you look at what Larry, you know, did with um, in Palm in Palm Springs and, and tennis could be a really interesting format because you could actually own and control the actual venue. 
Um, and I think, you know, part of, of this is, can you, because there's a lot of passion around, around certain venues. Um, I think you're going to start seeing it also in, in certain types of, uh, for example, I can see it happening in, in skiing as well, not from necessarily a team standpoint, from actually a resort ownership standpoint. Makes sense. Right. Um, and, you know, because I look across the hospitality kind of sports interface there, I see tennis for sure. Uh, golf is really interesting because you have the passionate fan base. There is a thing called Link Style that, that's out there right now. They actually, they're not structured properly, but they were actually going to try to buy a golf course, but they, they didn't structure themselves. So they're going to have to restructure how they did it because they didn't do it with a security. They did it with an NFT, which is, and you're not allowed to actually even purchase um, an equity interest with it. But there's going to be a play for sure in those areas because you have very, very large passion participants. And I'm excited about that. We're in some interesting conversations about expand within those sports, you know, arenas. Um, we are going to be launching in the, the art and collectible space for sure. If you look at what masterworks.io has done, you know, they basically have just doing it with LLCs. Um, but they actually behave as the, also the, as the expert to acquire the art. I think you're going to see a generation, we for sure will be at the forefront of that, where we give the DAO the ability to actually select the pieces that are actually acquired and disposed and the time of that disposal. So I think the art collection world is going to become really interesting. It is a great, you know, it's already a highly developed asset class as it is. Um, so ultimately, if you look at areas that can be democratized, I think you can see the collectibles world more democratized and access to, to uh, both art and the auto world that will, I think, also be democratized as well. Um, I'm also very interested in the financial services area um, and providing access to elite um, private equity and credit managers. You know, this is the kind of the world that I came from, and I know the world very well. And the issue right now is that that world has become, you know, the ultra elite. If you can't stroke a five or ten million dollar check, you don't have you have no access to the best managers in alternative asset hmm. classes. And what I'd like to do here is take the same exact structure break where people could, could put a quarter million dollars in and, you know, we can then pool and aggregate that across a few thousand people. And now you have, you know, you have a billion dollar uh, kind of fund to fund structure that you, you can go and you can get access. You can, you can stroke a hundred million dollar check to Apollo or Aries or KKR and you can get their, their flagship funds. And so you can bring, you know, lawyers, doctors, um, you know, folks that that have a couple hundred thousand to invest, but don't have five million to invest. So so you'll see us branching into those categories and then entertainment finance. And we have a product that we've developed. We've just decided to hold off until we do the sales GP. You'll see it occurring around entertainment finance to both in music and in film. I think you'll see us probably, you know, that will probably be next not 23 but 24 um because there's an entire wherever the sausage is being made and there's a fascination you can link and you can monetize that so you can not only invest in that stream uh, but you can create great community around if you think about the amount of ip that's generated um that's never even seen in developing either a movie or a broadway show or even a a, a, a music record you know, there's months and months of work. You know, Broadway shows three years, a movie, it's a year. Uh, a, uh, 
a uh, record is you know a few months and there's ways for us to bring the equity in democratize that give people a piece of, of the upside um and if you think about film finance right now it's kind of done that way they do these club deals all the time and um and so you know it's basically bringing that from you know five or ten people they're putting the equity up for a movie and just expand it out to a few thousand people and create a really interesting community around the whole process of creation. So yeah, the next five years is going to be really kind of exporting this structure to a couple of the areas that, you know, are right for, uh, I, I, I don't call it disruption. I call it really uh, democratized access. Really, it, it isn't like we're going to try to change the way the entire world is, is, is working. We're really giving people access to the, a, a world that they didn't really have access to before in a transparent trustless way and that's really what web3 allows is it allows people to transact that don't necessarily know each other because everything is 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 forthright on the blockchain so 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 i have uh three quick points the, the last one will be the last step i'm going to take down the rabbit hole tom here and then i'll give it to you that's okay yeah. Yeah. first is that world of entertainment or sports wants to has to want to be democratized which i think that's a big issue number one they don't yeah. they don't want it. can you imagine you know, uh, Kevin Costner sitting there for the next iteration of Yellowstone and some guy who bought a token come in and say, well, tell me what your motivation is, Kevin. I, I'm, I'm part of this. Wow. So that's number one. Number two is, um, and this is actually the most important one with the rabbit hole. I'd love your opinion on how the disruption of things like chat GPT and AI in terms of authenticity of collectibles, anything that's going on could how do you deal with that? If you know, again, you're you're kind of on this parallel path of trying to, you know, democratize things and give people opportunity. Yet you've got all these people out there now, faster than ever, creating fake stuff that that everybody's. So how yeah, does, I mean, with the essence, right, just, just, let me just add on to that question, uh, David. Um, with the you, you mentioned IP a lot as, yeah. as a key driver of all this, and when you see some of this IP that is being generated through generation. Joe, the latest we haven't talked about yet, but we need to have a sidebar about uh, later is uh, Music LM from, yep. have you seen this from Google? Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know it, you got to check it out. It's um, it's artificially, uh, artificial intelligence generated music. You can literally put in a text description, play me a sad song that features a string quartet uh, with with a uh, with a mid tempo uh, pace or something like that, and within seconds you're getting stuff. And and any concept you can think of, just like in ChatGPT with the with the text and writing, it's really eerie. So in, on the Google research page, they have examples of all these queries they did. And Joe, it's kind of stunning, actually. Yeah. So to Joe's point, David, think about music. BuzzFeed now announcing that a portion of all its articles will be ChatGPT. Sports, Sports Illustrated today, the same thing. But did they really? I didn't see yes. that. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, you know, I've been because of this journey. I've actually, I've had the, I don't know if I call it the privilege, I, but I've been able to sit down with both folks at the music side and the art side. They can about the same thing. You can compose an entire painting now, um, using AI. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some demonstrations of not only the combination of that, but the combination of deep fake technology with, with avatars. And I was on a demonstration of some advanced avatar work that was combined with speech um, and music. 
That was so scary. Actually, I asked them to turn off. I couldn't distinguish. <laughs> they were they were running the artists live and then the avatar, and I couldn't distinguish between the two of them. Wow. And it was it was that kind of so there's a there's a whole set of ethical issues, and I've and I've seen kind of where it's going. And it, you can't stop it. That train is kind of left the station. There's a massive amount of development work that's happening right now. What I've found. Now, look, we could ultimately lean into that, right? We can create some really interesting um, experiences for folks around it. Uh, we're not focused right now. We're, as far as exploiting it, we're focused on trying to understand how that's going to impact how consumers interact with entertainment, how they interact with sports, how they interact with all of these. I mean, the... the, the um, and... What we have found is that there still is right now the desire from a human connection standpoint that they that they do want real. They want to be able to see experience real. They want those analog experiences still. So we're focused on it. But if you think of what's happened in motorsports, you know, right now with the with with the virtual racing leagues, um, that's actually, you know just a very, very small part of where it's ultimately going to go. I mean, you're going to be able to have unbelievable virtual experiences that are all AI driven. Um, there's still fandom around that. Uh, you know, there's, there's ways to exploit that. On the music side, you're, you're going to see it. You mentioned about, you know, Roblox right now. If you think about what Roblox has already hosted in music, what Fortnite has hosted in music, right? They've had over 30 million people show up for virtual concerts. Um, Fortnite, you're going to see more kind of metaverse web three experiences that are fully AI generated, both art, you know, from an art standpoint, from a music standpoint. And by the way, because they are going to be able to use um, to write scripts, you're going to be able to see full on movies, dialogues written uh, using AI. Um, so there's going to be a consumptive part of that equation that will eventually probably incorporate into some of our endeavors. Um, it is, it is an area, though, that, you know, for me, it really weighs on me. There's huge ethical um, issues about is there proper disclosure that it's an AI-generated versus a, a human-generated. And right now, those ethical boundaries are so mixed and so blurred. It's, it's really a very, very difficult um, area for us to kind of navigate through. Um, but it's something that, you know, I basically you know, on a basically probably weekly basis, seeing different areas that are going to be impacting. You're going to see huge, you know, by the way, huge impact in, uh, in entertainment for sure. Um, it's, and, and, and there's, there's interesting demand for it. I mean, people, and I, I've seen some things that are really quite compelling and that I think are going to be really interesting uh, ways for people to consume, uh, you know, in a metaverse but that's again, it's not a live experience. You know, ultimately, it's just not live. And there is, a, there still is a value for live, for yeah. sure. David, could, can we get your opinion on what we just witnessed over the last two years with the rise and fall of NFTs, at least V1 of the NFT yeah. craze? Because it's really been an interesting thing. And yeah, yeah, I, I, I was, yeah go ahead. Yeah, and I was never really interested in from an asset standpoint. I was very interested in it from a use case standpoint. Um, we actually, I ran an NFT conference here in Jackson Hole almost a year ago. And 
it was all based around use cases. And I think that the problem people, you know, it was, there was so much hype around it. And there was really two major use cases that I saw developing that I think will endure. One was NFT as basically access to membership and community, right? And they, they, and that's really, if you think about where a lot of them defaulted, if you think about Bordy, Bordy Yacht Club, that ultimately was about actually access to a community. It really wasn't about the art itself and the generative art. Um, they kind of fell into that, right? They, you know, I recognized immediately as soon as they put the bathroom up and do graffiti that people really were looking, say, hey, I'm part of this cool new community. And I think those who recognize, and I, I know the folks at Uden Labs that recognize they're really in the community management business and the NFT was really just a, a, a new way to document and to display membership whereas a, a, in a particular community, um, you know, a certain type of badging. That was, that was interesting. And what you're seeing in the next generation, it started over the last year, and Yuga actually is, 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 is introducing this right now, are dynamic NFTs. And that allows a smart contract that basically underlies the NFT to alter the form of that NFT over time, depending on either external or internal uh, data input. So you can have a, a, a dynamic NFT. We're going to be doing dynamic NFTs with CLGP, where as the team scores certain points during the season, you know, has certain ups and downs during the season, things will get released under your NFT contract to you. It could be a proprietary piece of video, could be some audio, it could be you know, access to an event. And so the use case for NFTs, I think, is very, very exciting that what it's going to do with fandom uh, because a smart contract is nothing. All it is is an if-then statement, right? And for all of us who grew up, you know, you know, programming if-then statements in Excel, it's just, it's really a very interesting, you know, public ledger of an if-then statement where, where you can make promises you know, a decade down the road to a member saying, well, if this occurs, this absolutely is, gonna, is going to be delivered to you. you know, this digital um, good or service is going to be delivered to you. That's a very powerful mm -hmm. contractual relationship to have with a community member, with a fan saying, you know, because that way you, 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 you take all the trust issues out of the equation and the fans say, well, geez, if this happens over the next five years, 10 years, this is going to, this is going to be delivered to me. I think it's really exciting. But the value, though, you know, people got so distracted with, oh, the value of this photograph that we've now made it an NFT somehow is going to have, you know, unbelievable, appreciative um, value over time. It, I think it was just a bunch of charlatans really kind of ripping people off. And it really, really, <laughs> it just so distressed me. <laughs> it, it, it just distressed me, right? Because I, I, I know that there was some really good core fundamental technology that was going to be very empowering over time and, and create really interesting fan engagements over time. Um, but, you know, unfortunately it got derailed. So, so I think the fall actually is a good thing because it, it, it cleared all the charlatans. Yeah, I agree. It feels like, it feels like it's a good chance to level set and yeah. really think about the issue of that, you know, that we've been talking about since, since uh, you, you started your, uh, your description and that is, building real value through community and like functionality and utility, because just having right. like, I've got my NBA top shots, which I was complaining about to Joe. There are a bunch of video uh, clips that I could see on YouTube or Instagram. Um, and uh, there's no way to really share them. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's kind of a mm -hmm. weird thing right now. Yeah. I would, I would really like 
as a as a deliverable, I would really like Steve Cohen to deliver a World Series championship to the Mets. That's well, what I would do. <laughs> well, I don't know. If, I don't we know, can keep all the NFTs. Maybe in the Metaverse, Joe, not in I, not IRL. You do have to admire I mean, the Mets had a good. They had a good run this last year. It was a heartbreaking end when the when Atlanta beat them up. But um, and we look, we we had a relationship with the Atlanta Braves, so I have a soft spot for Atlanta Braves. We did do some of our experiences at Diamond with the Atlanta Braves as well. Um, we did more with the Yankees, the Giants, but it was really cool seeing the Mets and the Braves kind of go at it this season. So um, okay. anyway, <laughs> but so let's. Yeah, let's let's transition to our final two questions. But one last wrap up thing on this topic. We saw the um, challenges that NFT has, which was the first kind of, I guess it's fair to say, consumer expression of blockchain technology, not fully 3.0 in many cases, some 2.5 like Dapper Labs, where you're using a credit card, you're not using crypto. When, When in your estimation, and you can keep the answer short because we need to wrap in a few. When, in your estimation, will blockchain-based experience, such as what you're doing with your DAO and SailGP and, and new clients or partners that you'll get, a resurgence, hopefully, and reimagination of NFTs, when will it become more mainstream for average people? And let's just take sports and say average fans, as opposed to accredited investors and rich people. Yeah, well, I think we're still... I think we're still a few years away. The, the, we need the engineers to get out of, out of the basement and understand how consumers need to engage in something in a very yeah, easy that's, that's a good point. <laughs> it's, way, it's just way too difficult. The yeah. setting up wallets is way too difficult. You know, what we're trying to do, and you'll see what, what SailGP is doing, we're, Oracle and Near are working on a whole new Web3 interface that's going to be pretty slick. It's they're taking kind of what they did for Red Bull Racing uh, Oracle built their their fan engagement app, and they're bringing it into Web3, and it's going to be a lot easier to use, and I think you'll start to see those use cases rolled out over the next year or two, so I think we're still three to five years away from having enough people understand that the engineering needs to be so consumer easy and friendly. They're not thinking about, oh, this is what they're saying. Oh, this is a really yeah. cool experience, right? And, and we're just at the forefront of that right now. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. And the one thing that we've we've talked about this before on this pod, and Joe and I have discussed it separately, is that since the number one item of digital consumption is a smartphone, you know, typically iPhone or Android, the mobile experience is just not there yet. Um, right, it's it's not. It's, 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 the, it's the, a huge the, disappointment. They're so. Oracle and Near are building. It's a full mobile. They're not even doing it for for laptop. They're oh interesting. So oh, okay. And I've been I've been with the engineering teams for both Oracle and Near in those meetings, and they understand that it has to be full on mobile. They're not even. They're ignoring. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's you know again that's that's just one effort that's occurring right now. And, and but the, the if you look at what their Web two version was for Red Bull Racing, it's a, it's really nice easy uh, kind of consumer interface so you know we'll see how it rolls out here for a, a right and that's kind of like, that's kind of the irony like the, the one thing we can say about web 2 is that ui for for most major platforms became fantastic, fantastic. And, and ironically as we try to transition that's the main one of the main issues because you said like the engineers were running the show uh, right. and that's not the way it works when you right. get into the consumer market at least so all right so we gave you a fair warning about our last two questions. Hopefully, we're ready to answer them. 
Uh, first is about how you keep current. How do you stay up on things? You're obviously paying close attention to the technology market, the hospitality market, the entertainment market, the sports market, et cetera. So what are you using to uh, to stay abreast of everything? Uh, a couple of things. First, I'm a voracious reader of everything going on in the tech world. I mean, so I'm on the, I'm on the internet a lot, probably, probably more than I probably should be. But and, and just every possible different type of viewpoint website, I consume it all from geopolitics to what's happening in technology to what's happening in uh, a lot around consumers, obviously, because I'm really because hospitality and mission. So focus a lot on, on what's happening in the consumer world. Um, and then I'm also out, you know, I really believe in there's nothing better than whether it's Zoom or whether it's meeting people. You have to be out with folks and you, you really need to be engaged in the world and talking with thought leaders and, you know, going to conferences and engaging with people, but really asking them questions. And I, I like pulling, you know, the engineer aside and I was, I went to Lisbon, I went to this Web3 conference in Lisbon, just pull these folks aside and say, what are you working on? What are your problems? You know, what, what are you trying to solve? And those, it, it really gives you a, a real window into in the next few years and in, in some of the issues that that they're working on um so that's I, i'd say a lot of reading and then a lot of just you know being out with with folks from all walks of life by the way i mean i really it's very important you, from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization you really need to make sure that you're you're not being an elitist in who you're having access to you want to you want to have access to everybody great uh, just quick follow-up on that how much stock do you put into a lot of the IP about new tech and blockchain stuff that's coming from the venture capital companies like Andreessen Horowitz, obviously has been extremely aggressive content wise and some, and they've been, it's been said, let's say that they're really just trying to build this agenda to benefit themselves with the LPs and stuff like that. Well, so do, do, you, do you respect that stuff? Do you read that stuff, listen to their pods and read their white papers and stuff? I do, and they've been—you know—they pulled back a little bit, I think, because the crypto world is so paranoid of the VC world. I mean, there's there really is a huge tension there. And look, I come from the private equity world, so I get it. I understand the tension, and I think it's—it's the tension is good to have. I think it's you know be more authentic. But you can't ask Andrews and Horowitz—they have a fiduciary responsibility to their LP, so it's going to be self-serving what they're doing. It, you know, even though they tried to kind of, I think, you know, paint it in a little bit different picture. I just come from the viewpoint, whenever I see any of the guys from, from the VC world, the product world, you know, putting out a lot of white papers, I say, look, it's ultimately for their, for their financial benefit. And if you just, if you put that worldview on, I think it's okay. And we, you know, we, we had people that attended our conference from, from that, from that world. Um, and I think, I think that, you know, the fact that they're willing to invest and put the money in uh, is great. I, I do think that it's a, it's a bit self-serving, but that's okay. I think you need, yeah. I think you need both. All right. Now on the career advice. So we have a lot of students and alumni from our program listening, as well as industry people and some yeah. of different ages, but I think it's most helpful from experienced folks to give advice to the younger people getting their careers going. What do you, what do you have to say on that? Yeah, I'm a well. First, I'm a huge believer in education, so I'm glad that you you're at Columbia. I'm, I'm just you know, it's it's it really does matter. I think 
And, and, I, and I truly mean education. I don't mean indoctrination, right? You really need to, you really need to broadly explore all different types from art to music, to science, to, to, um, to business and the language of business. Uh, and so take advantage and a lot of your folks are at Columbia, take advantage of everything that Columbia has to offer across the spectrum and, and, and be well-educated and well-versed. And also a big believer, and you'll know this from Hamilton days, is, is that you really need to be well-versed in the English language and know how to present and, and, and write well and present well. It, it will serve you well. If you can't communicate your ideas properly, you can't write in, in a great paragraph your ideas, you're not going to be able to really engage with the world all that easily. So acquire great breadth of, of education, really understand how to exploit language, both written form and the, and the, and the verbal form. And the, and the third thing is, I can't stress this enough, really try to figure out how to marry passion with what you're doing from a work standpoint. Um, it's, it's so important that you, that you wake up excited about the opportunity to do something that you really enjoy. And when we were at Diamond, you know, we organized our entire business around the privilege of making an impact in somebody's life. That's really what hospitality is about. And we, we had 10,000 employees and every single day, you know, we reinforced, this is an unbelievable privilege you have to wake up and to do something positive for somebody, some other human being and make them, you know, make them happy, let them, you know, have a, have a, a great day they may not have otherwise. So if you can marry that, and I was passionate about that. I love impacting people to the positive. So if that's kind of what you like to do, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I was able to marry that with a career. So if you can do that, I think educate yourself, master the English language and, um, or whatever language you're communicating, whether, you know, if you're an Asian, you master your, your, your language um, and do something that you really think that you love waking up to and you're passionate about doing it, it'll you'll do well. Nice, so, thank you, Tom. We buried the lead. I forgot both of you guys are Hamilton. Yeah, um, I, I had. I was going to ask you to sing the bring that song before we no, let you go. We, we very rarely have a chance to give a shout out to um, old uh, dear Hamilton College in upstate New York, where probably right now it's you know minus seventy degrees. By the way. Um, but yeah, it is such a coincidence that we both went there. And Joe, we found out, I, I can't remember if you were on in the pre-show part where we realized we lived in the same house, um, not at the same time, obviously, but we actually uh, spent one year in the same place. When I lived there, uh, it was a fraternity house called DU. And then David was there a couple of years later. Uh, although he was not a member, apparently he got a room in there. I'm not sure how he pulled that off, David, but that that's impressive. Uh, yeah. only get in back then if you were in the frat. You sold the but... virtual currency and they gave them the <laughs> Really? Exactly. You got them in on the uh, on the, the new Dow. Uh, well, I think back in Hamilton, David, if, you, if someone said, you guys will be meeting up in 2023 to talk about decentralized autonomous organizations and, and near protocols, we would have, our minds would have been blown. On, on Zoom, by the way, not on in person. Zoom, on a, on a right, Zoom right. podcast at Columbia University. That's really funny. Actually, you know, the, the best class I took actually prepared me for this conversation. So the senior seminar in physical chemistry, you basically spend the semester um, doing the mathematical equation in quantum mechanics that proves that an electron can occupy two states simultaneously. I was thinking the same thing just now. <laughs> right? and once you just you accept, lost me and Joe. Right? But once you accept 
that actually that is a mathematical reality that an electron can occupy two states simultaneously. That's where the philosophy comes is that it changes your entire worldview that almost anything therefore is possible, right? So on the one hand, it was, it was a very weighty semester academically and it was you know, very kind of focused on this mathematical equation. But on the other hand, probably the most profound impact on me in my worldview going forward that you know, we, there is so much unknown and there's so much yet to prove, there's so much yet to explore that you know, mm. I, I became much more expansive in my, in my worldview after realizing That's that. That's great. Uh, oh. Yeah, so it was, it, was, it was probably the best class I ever took, even though it was probably miserable. <laughs> right, stuff. that's funny. Um, all right, uh, before Joe wraps us up, just tell everybody where they can get a little bit more information on Bernoulli Lock. Um, well, you know, you can go to BernouilliLock.com or 14E.com, 14E.com is the easiest way to get there. And um, there's, you'll see then links to our, our fan-owned salesgpteam.com. That's where we have the specific information about uh, what's happening with salesgp right now. Um, that's a, its own kind of ecosystem that we put together of disseminating information and actually doing it in a full online uh, accredited investor um, investment pathway. Nice. Okay. Cool. Great. Well, futurist, physicist, I'm trying to think of how we kind of captured it. It doesn't matter. Anyway. I want to go back to the original description, a scientific philosopher. Scientific so philosopher. That was By the way, I, I never, I think my team must have come up with it. I don't, you I don't, know, I'm, yeah. I'm reading a verbatim. I didn't make that up. I know. They must, they must have said it because at first they never, they never showed Wait, it. Wait, I, I, we don't have the time for me to read the whole paragraph, but it, it's mm. it's quite interesting. I'll send it to you uh, after. Yeah, send it to me because I, I, I haven't <laughs> seen that. I, I, uh, I'd like to see what the heck they sent because yeah, I, I didn't nice. realize that. <laughs> anyway. So uh, once again, David Palmers, thanks for joining us on the Cusp Show. I know I learned a lot today, and uh, uh, it was great crossing worlds, virtual and, and real, I guess, with you at this point. So, uh, but once again, this has been the Cusp Show. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito. Our guest was David Palmers with my co-host, Tom Richardson. We will see you down the road. Thank you, David. Have a great day, and uh, see everybody in the next episode. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.